Grab your seats. And you can turn to Matthew chapter 6. Holly's going to read for us Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 24. And so this will kind of help us kind of get back into where we're going. Again, we're, we're walking through the Sermon on the Mount. Even as we read this section, right, like this one, this one doesn't have a lot of, of Jeremy interpretation in it. So it's pretty straightforward, which would be great. But remember the context in which we're having the conversation, right? That we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount. How do we live flourishing in the midst of what feels like a constant bombardment of unrest, right? Uh, whether that's internal, external, whether it is uh, real-life struggles and real-life wars and rumors of wars and everything going on, even like in Israel today, right? Like all those kind of things. Or if it's like just the, the real internal struggle of who am I? And what do I do? How do I live? And where, where am I supposed to be? And all those kind of things. All those things are valid and true, right? And so how do we, in the midst of that reality, live a flourishing life, especially those of us who believe what we talked about all summer, right? That, that, that God has actually freed us from oppression and brought us into a land of, of, of the living, a land to live, of, to live in abundance. And so, so what's the disconnect and how do we connect, make the connection? So even as we read this text, remember that this, there's a whole series of conversations that went on before it even as we have the conversation today. So Holly, if you would, read for us Matthew chapter 6. Okay, Matthew 6, 25 through 34. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious, divided instead of whole, about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious enough for itself, giving plenty of opportunity for effective concern for properly relating to the whole. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Thank you, Holly. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Um, Don't we know that to be true? (laughs) Right? I mean, have you ever woken up into a day and felt like there's no trouble, that there's, there's no difficulty, there's no, nothing to overcome? Now, some days, right, are smaller things, right? Some days there's less things to overcome. Some days there's more things to overcome. But, but Jesus says enough trouble exists within each day. And I would say that we probably can attest to that, right? It doesn't take much perspective to recognize that each day has more than enough to face, whether we're facing plenty or hunger, abundance or need, or more often some mingled mess of more and less, right? There's no need to go looking for, much less create drama. 
still, we especially, we raised and shaped in our era of history and global positioning adore drama, don't we? Listen, like we've talked about the last couple weeks, um, you know, global geography and, you know, quantum mechanics. And I'm sure like half of you just decided to check out on all those statements and it was great. But today we're going to talk about something that like everybody loves, which is drama, right? We love drama. Everybody loves drama. We, we love drama. We're drawn to it like moths to a flame. The stories that permeate our landscape from bestsellers that we read to the most watched list to the most listened podcast are all an amalgamation of dramas. Some of them good, some of them not so good. Some of them compelling and some of them really corny, right? Some of them tragic and some of them triumphant. Either way, we are suckers, it seems, for the troubles of life. We're suckers for it. It's a, it's a huge market. It's a mass market. It's what actually like we consume more of more than anything else. Whether it's, again, on television, on podcasts, or in books, what we consume is drama. And while it's true that what we take in affects what we put out, it shapes us. The stories that we tell, that we read, that we listen and to watch, they influence our experience of the world. But I actually think that there is something deeper driving the appetite for our drama. We are, as we said last week, all looking for or longing for a truly good, blessed, happy, and purposeful life, right? That's what we've said. The whole premise of the series is that we long to live in the promise that God made for us, a life abundant in Him, right? The, the manifestation of, of something substantial is what we're after, a real that occurs in the granular interaction, the collision with another. And doesn't drama give us a bit of that? at least an emotional feeling of it, right? It, it, it fills our endorphins and, and gets us kind of engaged in what feels like real life, right? Drama sparks our senses of life, subtly or sensationally. It draws us into the passions that come from guarding or giving up what is most treasured. That, that it, it sparks our senses in a way that we get into the emotions of losing sight of life and the efforts to regain it and all the things that come around those kind of stories. Or the heat of, of a love and hate that blend together, right? And the complexity of these love-hate relationships that are often the center of the stories. So if the old adage that our hearts are idol factories has any validity, and I'm sure most of us have heard that if we've been in the church for any amount of time, I'd argue that our souls, if our hearts are idol factories, our souls are drama gluttons. If our, if our, if our hearts create idols, things that we, that we worship, our souls actually like cling to, long for, go searching after, and can't like satisfy themselves with drama. So whether the collision is with a problem, whether the drama happens because there's a problem or a competitor, an interior alignment that's off, or an exterior force... The interactions that hold our attention, that inform our imagination, are really processes of the soul. They're granular interactions of souls reacting, whether to one another or circumstances or even themselves. And the problem is the drama we're perpetually pulled into is often an act, right? I mean, think about it. The stories that we tell. The Latin root for the word drama is, is just that. It's an act, a play, something put on. It's an embellished production that depicts reality, but it's just that. It's an embellished production, a representation that only captures a part of the story, whether because of its inherent limited, limitedness, right? Like a book, a movie, a podcast can only give you really one side of things. There's not a give and take interaction, right? It's telling a story from one angle. There's, so there's a limited nature to it in scope and time and ability. And... 
And it's often structured biasly, right? There's a reason why the story is told. Bias doesn't necessarily mean negative. It doesn't necessarily mean malicious. But we tell a story in a way to get across what we want to get across. To tell a story in a way that helps other people have sympathy, empathy, or get into the drama itself, right? We want them to get into the drama. The stories that are told are told to draw us in and to get us into the drama, right? There's a biasness to it. There's a structure to it, right? Yes, no, maybe I can see some agreement and disagreement. But anyway, that's the theory, right? So life, but here's the deal. Life, and listen to this, because this is, I think, important. Life truly is not a drama. Life is not a drama. No matter how much we feel like it's a drama. No matter how much dramas make us feel alive, life is not a drama. It's not a production. It's not an embellished representation of what is real from one side in limited perspective. With bias structuring. Your life is not a drama. And I know maybe that makes t complete total sense, but think about it. Like how often we compare our lives to the dramas that we hear and tell and, and, and watch and read, right? How much we find ourselves in there and the anxiety that happens, the, the feelings that happen when we find ourselves in the midst of drama, right? So when our souls get drawn into the particular dramas of life, the parts of felt conflict, these parts but not whole descriptions of life foster the kind of under-the-surface anxiousness that Jesus speaks of in Matthew chapter 6. When Jesus uses the words, as, as Holly read for us, do not be anxious, when he uses the word anxious negatively, do not be, it refers to functioning on a part as opposed to the whole. That's what the word literally means. To be anxious is to function on a part rather than the whole, or to be divided into parts or going to pieces. Doesn't that describe anxiousness? Like it feels like you're going to pieces, you're pull, being pulled apart, drawn apart, right? But the whole idea for anxious comes out of you're only engaging, you're only interacting on a part of the story, a part of the thing, but not the whole thing. There's only a part that's, that's pulling you into it, or you're getting pulled into a part. We said the unease and unsettledness churning under the surface of our everyday lives has less to do with the particular people in which we share those lives with and the circumstances of our individual moments. That our unease and unrestlessness isn't so much environmental as it is something underneath the surface. It's not the workloads or the workspace, the politics or the personalities, the economy or the wars and rumors of wars. Literally, as much as those things are real, those aren't the cause of our unease and unsettledness. They're not the source of it. They may, we may feel the tension in those things, those very real things, but they're not the source of our unease and our unrest. Those troubles, as our scriptures would call them, are as typical as the day. Remember, sufficient is for the day is its own troubles. Those are troubles, and they're real troubles. They're just not the source of our anxiousness and our unsettledness. No, we said that the source of the subtle and overwhelming anxiousness and restlessness of our cultural moment finds its source in the processes, the series of interactions that make up our daily living. That's what we've talked about. Really quickly, here's what we've said. That a source of our, of our 
the current of, of anxiousness that, that pervades us is our navigational processes. When our interactions with one another are formed by our maps and models for knowing where we are or off. When we don't see how the world really works and how we really work within the world, like it creates an anxiety, an anxiousness, right? And so Jesus opened the Sermon on the Mounts by reorienting our position. He reframed the question of life and provided us with a new but not totally map and model of how we exist in the already kingdom of God, right? Blessed is already, right? Remember that? That the question isn't, how do I get to a happy, whole, and purposeful life? It's, what is covering up my happy, whole, and purposeful life? Which just completely changes the way you move through the world, right? That's what Jesus was trying to do. He reorients us. But but it's not just our navigational process. It's not just knowing where we are and how we're getting to where we want to be that creates anxiety. There's also our relational processes. the, The nature of our granular interactions that we talked about last week. The dispositions we bring into our everyday interactions and the ones that are brought into them by the people we're interacting with. These two are a source, maybe the most prominent source of our reactivity, but they're also the most prominent source of our peace. In the place where we feel our reactions most strongly and negatively is also the place that we get to experience the kingdom come and the will done, right? We get to see the Spirit of God alive even in the midst of those grainier little interactions. And so Jesus implores us, don't guard against such things, but move towards these collisions. Attentive to all the little things that are happening in you and in others. Using the map and model as a retrospective tool rather than a turn-by-turn direction. Right? And so now, today, we talk about soul processes, which maybe sounds a little strange, but I think, I think you'll get it as we go. These interactions within and between were the collision of desire and discernment and devotion. Desire, discernment, and devotion manifest into everyday living. Desire, discernment, and devotion, the things that make up any good drama book, any good drama, dramatic story, right? These things come and collide together into everyday living. That's our next process that we're going to look at. So now, I'm using the word soul, maybe in a way that you might not think of, of soul, Uh, Maybe you do, maybe you don't. But I'm using the soul to describe where our reactions of life resonate from. So we react to life. We talked about that at the very beginning, right? That we we are always reacting. So where where is the source of our reactions? The source of our reactions is our soul. They come from our soul. Some would argue our reactions are a matter of reason. That, um, That we react to life the way we do because of what we know and believe and the convictions that move us, right? Some of us would maybe kind of fall into that. We're more heady people. Like, not necessarily we're smarter. It's just we, we, we tend to operate more in a kind of a thinking manner rather than, a, than as opposed to maybe a feeling manner. Because there are some who say that our reactions come from our desires, from what we want, from the emotions that move us. And some of us in here would say we're feeling people, right? That we're, we're drawn into things. We're moved into things. We react to the stimulus of the world because of the way we feel. Some because of the way we think. Yet, the place from which our reactions manifest, the seat of our movement towards our way in living, at least according to our scriptures, does not disassociate our reason. It doesn't separate out the thinkers from the feelers, our ability to discern from our desires, but rather brings them together in mutual submission. Mutual submission. In the word that is translated, at least in our New Testament, as wholehearted. Wholeheartedly. So Paul, if you remember, we talked about this in May, 
um, said, whatever you do, remember, whatever you do, and whatever you do means like how whatever you're doing to make a life, to make your life good and whole, abundant. It's not just, not just merely like writing something down on a piece of paper. Like it's not like picking up, a, picking up something like that kind of do. It's no, the do that's a creativeness that makes life, right? All the things that work really entails. He says, whatever you do, work wholeheartedly as for the Lord and not for men. Wholeheartedly has another translation. In the Greek, it literally means whatever you do, work from the soul for the Lord. Work from the soul from the Lord. So whatever we give ourselves over to with our thoughts and emotions together, that's what, that's what the whole idea of soul is. It's a, full, it's a complete kind of giving of yourself into something, mind, feelings, desires, discernment, all coming together in submission for to something. Like in Paul's case, he says, submit it to the Lord, right? And not to men. In some sort of desired end. Our soul is actually the interaction of reason and emotion. And I think that one of the better ways to describe it is like an elephant and a rider. This is not original to me. This has actually been around for a long time. But our soul is actually the interaction of reason and emotion as Jonathan Hyatt, I think, does the best work on this. If you're curious, I've got a link in the sermon notes. You can go and read, read some of it. But it talks about the, the elephant and the rider. Elephant being like our emotions and desires. In all truth, and like the thing that tends to get the most weight in our life usually is our emotions and desires, our wants, what we're, what we're kind of drawn to emotionally, out of desire, out of love, affection, whatever you want to call it, right? But it never operates independently. There's always a rider, uh, like on the elephant, and that rider is reason, discernment. It's kind of forethought, thinking. It has a place, but again, it's not necessarily proportional. And that's okay. Sometimes we get a little, you know, we get a little offended if, it's, if, we, if things aren't proportional, but it's, it's not meant to be proportional. It's okay. We're all a little disproportional. And sometimes our rider maybe has more influence than the elephant, but, but really, in all truth, most of us are drawn, we're like elephants, like we're uh, with a rider on top, right? Our emotions and our mind are about that kind of proportionality. And again, this not necessarily proportionate give and take nevertheless works together in submission, in mutual submission to get us somewhere, to an end. When I say get us somewhere, it means it gets to a telos, an end, some sort of thing that we're after, to what Haidt would call a righteous mind, or in maybe more biblical language, to the kingdom of God and His righteousness, to a life with others that is abundantly good. This thing that brings together the emotion and the reason, the submission, leads us into, they mutually work together to get us somewhere in submission to an end, to an end of a good life. We're all after, again, a good life. We've already said that, right? And so the interaction of the soul in truth and in scripture and in social science is the complete collision of affection, reason, and submission. The collision of these things. They're not separated out. You don't got to pull them out and apart from one another. You actually need to bring them together. So to have a non-anxious, contented is a word we've been using a lot, soul, is to react to life from submitted, reasoned affection. I know that sounds like a lot of words, right? But it's important because like, that's the reality of life that we're dealing with, right? That there's a submitted, reasoned affection. And, and maybe I say it a little more cheeky, like 
it's, it's having heart, eyes, and devotion that are drama-free. And I'll explain a little bit more of what that means in a second. And when we live wholeheartedly, working from this collision of affection, reason, submission, of submitted reasoned affection from the soul, as Paul encouraged us, we not only experience the thing that we're after, the fullness of life in God through Jesus, we actually get to foster reactions in others that lead to what is good and true and beautiful for those that we share life with. Isn't that what we believe? Right? Isn't that why we do things together and why we like, actually come together and meet? Not just so that we can experience what, what we're after, but so that others might experience it too. Right? This is just the way it works. This isn't anything new or novel. This is just an explanation of the way it works. It being life with God and others, right? That when we give ourselves wholeheartedly into this life, this is where we'll find the peace. And we'll get to make peace and be peacemakers. Our problem, the thing that keeps us from walking in the fullness of that, the source of our anxiousness, is when we get pulled into the made-up drama of the pieces. Into the conflict of one or more of the parts of our soul. When we do the thing that all of us humans, especially us Western humans, do, and we divide it. <laughs> whether it's desire or discernment or devotion, whether it's our desire, discernment or devotion, or whether it's another's desire, discernment or devotion. Our anxiousness comes from when we are not wholeheartedly engaged in dealing with people who are wholeheartedly engaged. Right? That's where our anxiousness comes from. Because we're, what we're doing is inherently is that if we're not wholeheartedly engaged, then we're only engaging with the peace. One piece is, getting, is, is, is not just disproportionate. Because look, again, elephant and rider, they're not proportionally the same size. But if they're not working mutually in submission to one another, they're never going to get to where they want to go. Right? And so it's not so much that you're trying to, to, to squash one or the other or lift up one or the other. It's you're recognizing that, hey, I'm dealing with something that's off. Like one part of, the, of the, the triangulation of the soul and not the whole thing. And let me see if I can explain it by paraphrasing Matthew 6, 19 through 24. The, the verses that just precede the ones that Holly read for us. And again, like, like for those that are new, like we're, the way we're trying to walk through this is there's a ton of ways to look at the Sermon on the Mount we have in detail. And so we'll link back to, 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 to those things in the sermon notes. So if you're like, hey, some of the things you're saying seem a little crazy or whatever, it might not be the translations that we're used to. Like we, I can show you why we get to where we get to. I'm just not going to do it all right here. Um, but but we, this isn't just made up stuff. So um, you can trust me or don't trust me. It's fine. Like I've we cite it so that you don't have to trust me. Um, okay, so here's, here's what Matthew 19, 20, 19 through 24, Matthew 6, 19 through 24 talks about. And if you're familiar with the text a little bit, it's like, you know, treasure, blindness, can't serve two masters, can't serve God and mammon, right? So just as kind of a refresher of, the, of these things. But in the light of our context, here's what I think Jesus is saying. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures that will need to be guarded, protected, coddled, and cared for out of fear of loss. For your heart will be taken when they are. Your heart will be taken when they are. Have you ever felt the drama, the heightened energy and reactivity that accompanies an interaction with someone that's protecting the thing their heart is bound to, and you're trying to take it, or they feel like it's taken, or they feel like it's threatened? 
Have you ever reacted or overreacted because your heart felt threatened? Something that you treasured felt threatened. Have you ever, ever ran into that? Right? That's normal. So Jesus says, hey, be careful what you treasure. Not because like, the, the things that you treasure are inherently bad. Remember he says, rust and moth destroy, thieves come to steal. He's like, because listen, if your heart gets too entangled with those things, when those things eventually get pulled away, or you've got to protect against those things getting pulled away because troubles are real, then you're going to have a really hard time. You're going to create drama. You're going to create an intensity and heightened exaggeration of the troubles that you're really experiencing. He goes on to say, you need a light to get around. And if you have one, you can go just about anywhere, even in the dark. But if you don't have a light, how much darker is the dark? Have you ever been camping and had a lamp and walking around in the dark? And you're pretty confident. You're certain where you're at. You're pretty good, right? So, but then all of a sudden, the battery goes out in the lamp, and you're not really certain where you are, even though just a minute ago you are really certain of where you are. But now you can't see where you are, and even though you knew you were only like 12 steps away from your tent, and your tent was that way, now that the light's out, is it really that way? Is it really only 12 steps, or what about that? Now this noise over here is not just, cool, it's the woods and things are living. It's like, oh my gosh, it's the woods and things are living. Like, your, your whole anxiety starts to heighten up, right? Have you ever ran into the drama, the elevated energy and reactivity that accompanies when somebody, maybe yourself, is certain and then all of a sudden uncertain? Feels like they're walking in the light and know exactly what needs to be done and how to do it and where to go. And then all of a sudden, doesn't. And maybe they don't admit that they don't, and maybe you don't admit that you don't. But in truth, you're like, do I really know what I'm doing? Do I really know where I'm going? I know I just made this big grand plan and presented it at work. I know I just made this, 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 this statement of certainty to, to my friend or my spouse. But as soon as I say it, I'm like, is that really fully true? I mean, I was pretty confident. But internally, I'm like, eh, maybe. I'm not sure, 100%. Anybody ever done that? Anybody ever ran into anybody who did that? And you could tell in their own awkwardness, they were starting to question all the things they were just certain about, right? And felt the drama of it, okay? Jesus then goes on, he says, you cannot give yourself wholeheartedly to more than one life. It makes logical sense, right? But that's not the way we live. Love and hate, devotion and despising don't actually mingle as much as the stories that we read say that they do, right? Pride and prejudice, favorite one, right? Um, these things don't actually go hand in hand. Something has to give in both of those. Both of those things actually have to die, right, in order for there to actually be an affection of marriage and relationship, right? Like love and hate don't actually go together. You can't love something and hate something at the same time. There isn't a love-hate relationship with things. Right? That's, that's a false story. That's a false way. Like, because Jesus even says, you'll love one and hate the other. You'll despise one or, and be devoted to the other. You can't actually mingle those things. He says, in fact, they don't actually mingle. Their conflict actually is the thing that splits you to pieces. You cannot give yourself to life whole and holy with God and any other version of life abundant. You just can't. 
It's an impossibility. Have you ever experienced the drama, the sensationalized energy and reactivity that accompanies the dis dissonance of devotion? When what you say you want isn't the thing you actually wanted. When you say what you've committed to, you've thought through the plan, all those kind of things, and you say that you're 100% in, and then you're really not 100% in. Have you ever felt the anxiousness, the tension in your own self in moments like that? Or ran into that in somebody in your workplace or in your community? Listen, when we're not operating wholeheartedly from the soul with submitted reason and affection, when our hearts, our eyes, our devotion, are, are, if our, when our hearts and eyes and devotion are not drama-free, we find ourselves getting entangled in treasures and darkness and mammon dramas. These partial, limited, and biased depictions or dramatizations of real troubles. And the real troubles become elevated and escalated and grown up exaggerated, right? Because there's real troubles. There's real tension, right? It's not saying that there aren't real things. But what happens when our hearts or our, our minds or our devotion comes in conflict as a whole and working together is that we increase that the tensions beyond what they actually are. So when we, that's happening inside of us or that's happening inside of another, we feel anxious. We feel pulled into pieces, but not complete. We don't have an accurate picture in issues of making life good. We don't know how to deal with it because we don't have the whole picture. We're dealing with just one piece of the picture. And so we get anxious. Now, we have to acknowledge that there is an internalness to this process of soul, to discernment, desire, and devotion. There is a drama that we make up that puts us at odds with God and others and even ourselves. There's a piece of that truth, right? As much as we liked drama outside of us, it's partly because we're drama creators. Look, we have a tendency at times to exaggerate Things because our heart's attached to them. Because we're actually lost and not quite as clear as we thought we were. Because in truth, we're not wholly devoted to the thing that we said we're devoted to. Right? And so we create drama in our own souls. We create drama between us and others. And at some level, we have to own that, right? As much as we like drama, we also like to be dramatic. And again, this isn't a personality thing. Like, my daughter is a dramatist. She's, she loves to act. That is, that's not the kind of thing I'm talking about, like where she gets to get up in front of people and get, get to use all of her ability to help us believe. But isn't that the same thing that we do sometimes with our spouses and our coworkers and our friends is we want them, maybe not even want, we can't even help, but draw them into all the internal tension that we're feeling because we're being dramatic, because our hearts are holding on to something. And it feels like it's getting ripped, up, ripped away from us. Because, again, we thought we knew what we were doing, but we're really not actually confident and sure that what we're doing and how we're doing it is actually the way to do it. Or that we thought we were devoted, but it comes out, comes to find out we're not 100% sure of our devotion. That maybe there's something else that we long for, too. We're, we pull people into drama. But there's also an external side of that too, right? That we're actually getting pulled into the drama of others. 
Not their troubles. It usually masquerades as troubles or begins as troubles. Here's the tension I'm feeling. And it's this, this whole litany of circumstantial things that we talked about. Real things, real troubles in the day. But what's really happening is they're actually pulling us into their drama. And we're getting pulled into their drama. Their depictions of trouble. So what are we to do? How are we to both settle our dramatic tendencies and not get pulled into the drama of others? Because when we get pulled into the drama of others, we're just as anxious as if we're in our own drama. Right? When you run into somebody who feels like they have to protect something that's being threatened from them, do you feel comfortable? Usually your heart rate starts going. You start getting pumped up. And sometimes like, the reactivity could be to run from that. Sometimes the reactivity could be to jump in wholeheartedly and try to fix whatever it is that, that's going on in that. Sometimes it's to believe them wholeheartedly. Sometimes it's to, it's to overreact to their drama in some sort of way is our tendency. Because in, in what we want to do is we want to calm it, right? When we experience the intensity and anxiety of others, is our, most of us, our tendency is to want to calm that down. Sometimes it's our tendency is to just avoid it. We just don't want to, to deal with it, right? But like, we can't not deal with it if it, the people we're talking about are like the ones we talked about last week, the actual people we share life with. We can't avoid it. At some level, we got to get into it. So how do we get into it without getting sucked into the drama, right? How do we stay engaged without becoming dramatic ourselves? So what are we to do? Well, Jesus encourages us to do what the psalmist did. You might remember this psalm, Psalm 131. It says this, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and marvelous for me, like the soul. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, my soul is a child content. Jesus says in the verses that Holly read for us earlier, to calm and quiet your soul so that you and others can flourish. To avoid drama and actually get to enter into trouble. So the first thing Jesus says is to calm. The first thing for us to flourish in the midst of, of, of the anxiety and the drama of life, is we need to calm our souls. We need to literally step out of the drama. Do not be anxious, Jesus says. Don't be pulled into a one part. Remember, what does anxious mean? Be pulled into a part. Pulled into pieces. Do not be anxious. Don't get sucked into the made-up drama, your own or others, of surface desires, of desires that are not, not true desires, but aren't, the true desires. The desire for food isn't a false or wrong thing. The bird needed to eat, right? But the drama of getting and keeping the thing desired is an overreaction, an overdramatization. It's actually not real, right? Like, like again, there, there's trouble. There's always trouble in need of getting the basic thing. The bird doesn't just wake up and the, the food just comes into its mouth. It requires effort. And sometimes the effort is difficult. Sometimes the bird's got to fight against other birds or against prey or against what other things to get its food, right? Like, it's not saying it's easy. But there's not drama in it. This, 
this thing that it has to hold on to its food. If I miss this, then I'm out, and I've lost it all, right? That's the idea, right? It's like there's not a dramatic to it. It's just hard. Sometimes it's easy. Some days I wake up and the worm's right there in the morning. Early bird, right? Some days, you know, the paces feed, feed me, and then, and then all of a sudden the squirrels ate all the food, and now I don't have any of it, right? i got to go find somebody else's yard to, to get stuff out of. So don't get pulled into the made-up, the accentuated drama of getting what and keeping what is desired. See what the real difficulties are, but don't get pulled into the, the, the drama part of it. Or, or don't get pulled into the drama of blind reason. Listen, the need for, clothes, to, for the body to be clothed is a reasonable enough, right? It makes sense. It's, it's pretty necessary. But the drama that is figuring out all the things and ways necessary to do it is a bit exaggerated. Again, just look at the flowers. It's not that they don't need these things. It's reasonable for them to need protection from the elements, from all these kind of deals. But they don't put a lot of strength into knowing precisely how to get that thing done, right? They, the, the, the difficulty of growing is more based on do I have enough rain, enough light? Am I going to get stomped out on? There's troubles, again. And there's seasons that flourish and seasons of, of that, that are dry, all those kind of things. The constraint isn't do, how do I figure out how to do this? It's that this will happen. Or, Jesus says, to calm, step out of the drama of split devotion. Again, just look at what the Gentiles, the culture and world around us, goes after, gives themselves to. Listen, like sometimes the drama that we experience is we're simply just being like everything else. We're just going with the flow around us. We're caught up in the drama of this all around us. We're devoted to a life of, of fullness and wholeness that just happens to be the, the way fullness and wholeness is purported to be in any given moment, right? Based on what we watch, what we listen to, who we share life with, all those kind of things. That our devotion is actually split because of that. And sometimes the tension we're feeling is because we're really wanting the things that are being sold to us and not the thing that we say we're really after, Right? And again, that doesn't necessarily make all those things bad. Right, what do they need? They need food, they need clothing, they need basic things. It's not saying that those things aren't needed. Jesus isn't saying that those things aren't needed. He's just saying there's a, there's a drama that comes from the way we pursue them. So Jesus says, identify the source of unease and restlessness. Step back because of the source is not the trouble. Again, the source, that the surface desires the blinded reason, the, 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 um, um, the split devotion, like that is not the trouble, like the actual difficulty. There are real difficulties. So that means it's not something you can fix with a practical adjustment, a program, a thing, an answer. It's a soul issue. And if it's a soul issue, if it's a soul issue, can you fix it? Can you heal it? Can you satisfy it? No, right? I mean, that's, that's the church answer. I don't know if you believe it, but that's the church answer, right? No, you can't. Plus, Jesus says, there's no evidence exists that more drama makes a life longer or better. As much as we would love that, it's just not true. So, but once we've calmed our hearts, we've stepped out, then what do we do? Well, once quieted, our hearts are calmed, and we kind of take a moment to breathe, like, just like we did earlier, right? 
to let ourselves, let the temperature and our, the speed of our hearts and everything just kind of settle. We do so by giving God what is His. It's a soul issue, Lord. I cannot do this. Like the psalmist says, I don't play in things I'm not supposed to play in. I haven't lifted my eyes too high. I haven't thought things far out of this. I haven't tried to, to, to fix marvelous wonders, which is the human soul, right? I haven't done those things. Once we've given those things to God, we've stepped back out of our own anxiety and been able to give those things to God, we can step now into the actual trouble, the things that are actually difficult in life. Jesus says, discern. Look, says Jesus, see clearly is the actual translation, and observe, thoroughly grasp what is really under the operations of life's troubles. Right? What's really under the, 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 the happening in the midst of life's troubles? Why do things go bad and not easy? Why are things difficult? Is it, it's not because of all the dramatic things that we, says, we say it is. It's we live in a broken and fallenness, but God is gracious not to destroy us. And so, so, he takes what's even evil and turns it for good, right? We live in a, in a world and time where sickness is a, is a true reality, right? Why? But not because we haven't arrived at the kingdom of God, but because to remove all the ills of life would be to remove us. So if the troubles are there, the troubles are real, the tr- there has, there's real troubles in life, but the reasoning of those troubles isn't something that's related to the soul, but is an actual just reality of living. And they don't actually, as we said at the beginning, keep us from the people that we're after, the fullness that we're after. Well, then we can actually walk through with each other through the troubles, whatever those troubles might be. That those troubles, like the, for the, the trouble for food and for clothing, for the birds and for the flowers, are cared for out of God's providence, His affection for us who he cares for even more than the things that we look at to observe the truth of how the world works. And Jesus says, don't just look and grasp a desire. Seek. Go after to the very end. Be fully devoted to the kingdom of heaven, to life with God and others that is already and forever. And his righteousness, the experienced in the granular relations that make up today, his right relating that we can experience each of us as we talked about last week. You can live contented in a state of self-sufficiency, says Jesus, in relationship, because you're in relationship with life itself. You can experience the being sufficient within your soul, possessing the ability, competence to flourish in your life in every circumstances in which you, you live because your life is lived in God's life. And when we look around, that's what we see. The bird and the flower are just evidence that we're not struggling against life to live. But that we're living because, because God's in the struggle for life with us, right? You'll find, as Jesus said, when we do these things, when we calm our hearts, quiet ourselves, enter back into the troubles of one, with one another. Not a life without conflict and struggle. You cannot avoid trouble. You will not avoid trouble. But you can have a life whole and complete. Jesus says, all these things will be added to you. Again, the little translation means all these things. I will put all these things together for you. I will put your life together. 
We can't escape trouble, but we can do something about reacting to the drama. So, for a few minutes, golly, I'm going way too long. For a few minutes, we're going to consider <laughs> how we can calm and quiet our souls. So in just a second, I'm going to pray for us. And then we'll have just a few minutes of quiet. There's a, there will be tomorrow, posted up on the, on the website in the app, um, a, a much longer and more detailed um, practice of what we're about to do. So this is just a kind of a, a taste of it. Um, we're going to just take a minute to, to ask a couple questions of the Spirit to help us calm, step back, and quiet our hearts, give to the Lord the things that are, that, that, that are revealed in the stepping back as we discern, and then pray, step back into uh, what it looks like to might actually be able to, to, to walk in, um, in just a, a lack of anxiousness, a contented soul. And so um, up on the screen will be a question to consider a couple questions. Where are you being pulled into the drama of the soul within yourself or others? Let me encourage you, even in this quick question, think of a particular place where you feel a dramatic tension. And again, dramatic doesn't have to be like, not all drama is sensationalized drama, right? Some drama is super subtle. Some of the best dramas are really subtle dramas. So it doesn't necessarily have to mean like something that's just like, like blowing up on stage or whatever kind of deal. It could be something where you feel the drama of it. Like there feels like there's more to this than just the normal troubles. So just consider that right now. What first thing popped into your head, first relationship, interaction, whatever it is, whether it's at work or in your home or in your neighborhood or with friends or whatever it might be, and ask the Spirit to examine you to know, to help you see where you're being pulled into the drama of the soul, whether it's your drama that's causing the tension, the heightened anxiety, exaggeration, or whether it's somebody else's. And then when you're ready, Actually, when Chaz begins to play, that will be your cue to pray the prayer that's there. Whether you believe it or not, whether you're there or not yet, just pray it. I just invite you to pray it as a hope, as a promise, or as a conviction, wherever you're at. And then you can, you can come forward when, as, as we sing the first song. You can grab your communion elements, stay standing with us, and then we'll receive communion after that. Okay? So let me pray for us. Do it. Uh, we'll, we'll, we're fine. After after we, um, um, I'll pray for us, and then and then we'll have a couple moments. Father, we thank you. Um, we thank you that that you're with us in the trouble, but you help us not just with the troubles that we have, but the way we. <laughs> We create more trouble. That you're patient with us in it. And that you long for, as the Psalms testify over and over and over and over again, for our souls to be satisfied. For our minds, our hearts, our devotions to come together in fullness, in submission to you, in affection with you, in understanding of you, in life with you. And what's true of us, Father, Lord, is also true of our, our neighbors, our spouses, our friends, our coworkers, our employers. So help us, Father, to become ones whose souls are content, 
so that we might be ones with you who see flourishing for all those in whom we share life. This we pray in your son's name.